Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Jesse Smith, a.k.a. Gentleman Jesse, has been a fixture of the Atlanta music scene for over 15 years. Now, after taking a long break from the studio, the guitar-pop musician has returned with... Lose Everything, an album laced in the wisdom and heartbreak that a decade of life affords. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with Gentleman Jesse over Zoom, and we'll hear their conversation later this hour. First, the annual Invasion Christmas Carol is back on stage at Dad's Garage. After a year off for the pandemic in 2020, the popular holiday show follows the Charles Dickens classic storyline until a special guest appears to wreak havoc on the narrative. The actors then must improvise the rest of the show. Joining me now via Zoom, director Perry Frost and actor Magid Rushdie, who portrays Scrooge in Invasion Christmas Carol. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, for those who have not experienced Invasion Christmas Carol, which part is scripted and which is improvised? Or I should ask, how much is scripted versus that amount improvised? The ratio of scripted to improvised, I would say, changes every single night. So in theory, it is 100% scripted. We rehearsed an entire script and the actors memorized all of it. And then about halfway through the rehearsal process, we started bringing in the invaders. <laughs> so there is a possibility of just lines in the script being kept, but changed and customized to the invader that night. And then there's also the possibility that we could cut entire scenes. So that is pretty much all done on the fly. And we're lucky to have a cast of people who are talented as scripted actors and also very talented improvisers. As is death's trademark. <laughs> Do the improv actors have any clue who will join them on stage or at what time they'll appear? It's uh, none whatsoever. None and whatsoever. <laughs> in, in fact, us actors in the show go out of our way to try to keep it a secret from ourselves. There's so much joy when an invader comes in for that first scene that I would hate to rob myself or any other actor of that. It's like the joy of Christmas morning. I never wanted to know what I was getting as a gift as a child. Okay. Uh, Megan never peeked at his gifts. Oh. That's right. But we do know the exact moment they arrive in the show is always right after nephew Fred Scrooge leaves. There is a short lull 
and then the counting house door bursts open and you hear the bell ring and they are in it for the next two hours. Oh, wow. Now, who are some of the surprise guests that have already appeared during the show's run? Can you tell us? Yes. So roughly in order, we have had Paul Hollywood from the Great British Bake Off. We've had Moana. In rehearsals, we've had Naruto from the famed <laughs> Japanese anime. I think uh, one of my favorites so far has been Young Frankenstein and the creature from like specifically the Gene Wilder version, Mel Brooks's oh, Young Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein as everyone has been that's telling exactly you, it. I'm sure. As soon as he walked in, I called him Frankenstein and he immediately oh. corrected me. It was pretty great. And uh, our artistic director, Tim Stoltenberg, actually resembles Gene Wilder pretty heavily. Oh my. So that was, a, that was a special treat. That's fantastic. Megan, you talked about being surprised with gifts on Christmas morning and the joy of that. You are portraying Scrooge this year. You are an American of Egyptian background who grew up Muslim, I read. How does it feel to perform this traditional Christmas role? Um, well, I think being a, a zero-generation Egyptian-American, I Growing up, I had sort of like attention, as many zero-generation kids have, of both being Western and traditional at the same time in my household. So growing up, my mom tried her best to like celebrate Christmas. And of course, all my friends were celebrating it. So it was a familiar concept. And luckily, Christmas Carol is such a ubiquitous show. I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone that doesn't know exactly how that show is supposed to go or how that story is supposed to go. So I get to be pretty familiar with it. It's nice that your parents were understanding about a child's excitement at participating in this seasonal joy. Yeah. I mean, you don't believe for very long. Yeah. And I got the benefit of celebrating all the Muslim gift-giving holidays during the year and then also the uh, Western ones, so... I was just getting a ton of gifts, which I'm, you know, super for. Who can argue with that? I'm grateful that as Jews, my parents had no problem with my belief in Santa Claus. I mean, I think it was only until I was seven, but they stopped short of the tree. Did you have a tree growing up? Never really did a tree. And I think that's mostly due to like just general, I don't want to say laziness, but uh, we were just all so busy over the holidays that now as an adult uh, with my 10-year-old daughter, we do a tree, but it's a ton of work. So I can definitely get why my single mom immigrant mother wasn't going all out on Christmas. Oh, okay. So tell us, your approach to playing the character of Scrooge, and I guess, Perry, as director, you have something in here as well. Yeah, um, I'll let Magid start. I've played Scrooge in the past, so there were obviously some choices that he made that I either wouldn't have made or just couldn't have pulled off because he is so dang funny. So Magid, start with yours and then I'll critique it. I'll just pick it apart. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what are directors for, anyway? <laughs> you can help make my response better as I'm giving it. <laughs> so for me, I, I've had the benefit of being in the show as an ensemble cast member for a few years in the past several years that we've done this show. And luckily, I got to just steal all my favorite things that I've seen other Scrooges do. Even before I was at Dad's Garage, Invasion Christmas Carol was my holiday tradition. Every year, my wife and I would come and watch the show, and we just loved it. So I got a lot of really good things to steal from. <laughs> One of my things for Scrooge is he's so... I don't think you can come out and play just abhorrently mean. I think there has to be a reason that you're mean to people. 
And the way this particular cast sort of came together is I think Scrooge is condescending because he feels as if he deserves everything that he got. And if he can do it, surely everyone else can. And I feel that sense of entitlement is a fun in on how to be mean to people, because if I can do it, why can't you? You must be an idiot. Uh, and that's sort of my <laughs> cornerstone of Scrooge. Oh, Perry, how do you help inform this interpretation? Well, we have some parallels in the show, definitely to current American economic environment. We have some jokes of pitting capitalism versus socialism and speaking to that. Um, but I think overall, really what we tried to emphasize is the joy that you can find in changing your opinion on those things. That is Scrooge's journey is from being a person who assumes the worst of other people. And then by the end of the show, finding happiness in revisiting those relationships. So yeah, I guess conceptually, the most important thing was just the idea that it is never too late to change your opinion. Your director's notes are fantastic. I mean, I was laughing out loud, you know, almost rolling around on the floor. And in your director's notes, you ask, how has Scrooge been getting away without saying I'm sorry since the Victorian era? That's true. He never says those words. I think in Dad's Garage director's notes, there is no real, like, uh, it's, it's not usually a book report. Usually it's just supposed to be funny, but I actually read the original text just to make sure that I wasn't crazy. And sure enough, he never apologizes out loud to anyone. So what are your thoughts on the theme of redemption in this story? Because that's how we usually receive it, or we've been told to receive it. Mm -hmm. I think the only way to make amends is through action. And uh, Scrooge, by the end of the play, is most certainly a man of action. He is sprinting through the streets trying to catch up physically with the people that he needs to make amends to, but also catch up emotionally to the people whose emotions he's ignored and downplayed over the years. So the point that I make is that he was, he was too busy to say he was sorry because he had a lot to make up for. Well, that in and of itself is very forgiving. I mean, Eric Siegel in Love Story thought otherwise. <laughs> Love means never having to say you're sorry. That was just one of the more stupid lines. Yeah, well, I think maybe what he, maybe what he meant, or, you know, a charitable reading of that is love means never having to say you're sorry because you're showing that you're sorry. Ah, uh, behaviors, not attitudes. <laughs> yeah, maybe it can be self-evident if you play your cards right. All right. Dad's continues to expand upon the core message of inclusivity in its mission. And I noticed there are several special evenings during the run of this show, upcoming Nights include one for American Sign Language interpreted performance tonight and LGBTQ Pride Night tomorrow evening. And there's also a family-friendly matinee. How will those shows address each community? So we did as much research as we could for the ASL night. We're bringing in two interpreters who we have already given a tour of the show, kind of inside and out to make sure that they are standing in the right place. So visibility is high. The, we've made sure that the invader for tonight is also aware that their mouth should be visible for lip reading. So no masks, nothing like that. I think it's mostly just bringing in people who are way educated on those things than we are necessarily as a production team. For the LGBT night, 
we made sure to actually bring in queer actors and actresses. I like to add to that too, though, Perry, is that part of having the, the these community nights is that the audience becomes such a big part of the show. So when the audience is filled with a particular community, uh, regardless of where they come from, the actors respond to their laughs and their energy in a way that the show changes based on what they're reacting to. So just by nature of inviting these communities in, they get a show tailored for them. And Invasion is such a special show in that we're making half of it up as we go along. So it really becomes like a communal event where those nights, they those communities get what they want to see. Oh, I love that take on it, Maggot. I mean, it's it's really what improv comedy is all about, that the audience is essential to the process. And what about the family-friendly matinee? Do you regress to your childhood years? Oh, the, that couldn't hurt. Um, I, I think the biggest <laughs> thing with the family-friendly one is that Dad's Garage usually does programming for adults, but in Invasion, any vulgarity is fully improvised because otherwise we have a Christmas carol. So it can be customized as PG in the same way that it usually ends up being more PG-13 or R on a a non-matinee show. And Maggot is a father, so I'm not concerned about him having a show appropriate for a 10-year-old or what other whatever other age or appropriate for maybe more comedically conservative family members that might be in town to see that one. There you go. You do say family-friendly, not child-friendly. Why do you think the story of A Christmas Carol has remained popular and relevant today? I think that A Christmas Carol remains relevant because the story of someone who is way grumpier and way meaner than us still being deserving of redemption and being capable of making amends, I think that's something that we want to be true. And it's something that I think can be true if we learn from Scrooge's example. If this guy who was so rich and so rude can come around and end up with a group of friends and a group of friends who he's wronged in the past, then maybe it isn't too late for us. Maybe it isn't too late for us to atone for our mistakes. I agree with everything Perry said, but also as a slightly pessimistic view of what she said, I think also it's fun to see him get his comeuppance. (laughs) You want to see Scrooge sort of pay for what he's done in his life. And most of the the book, most of the play, uh, most of the movie is that you see Scrooge be treated terribly by these spirits until he finally learns his lesson. He keeps getting hit over the head by the same lesson and they're not tender with him. And I think it's fun to see him get beat up a little bit. (laughs) I love that take as well. This has been so much fun. And I have to say, dads, it's just, well, I think y'all hung the moon. So there. Well, thanks, Lois. I wish you both a happy holiday season, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lois. Director Perry Frost and actor Magid Rushdie, who portray Scrooge in Invasion Christmas Carol. The Dad's Garage Comedy Improv Show is on stage through December 29th. More information about special shows and dates can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. In September, a new public artwork by Alex Suavoni was unveiled in Decatur, bringing the artist's vision of a community effort to preserve black heroes and history. The sculpture, What Sonia Said, was commissioned as part of the Art for the People project of the Beacon Hill Black Alliance for Human Rights. Here, Alex Wavoni shares her reaction to receiving the honor of creating the work. I was honored to be able to continue uh, making work for communities to view and, and have. And I think it was it's a really good thing that they're doing over at AFP because work isn't always made for, you know, the community in this way. No. Did they give you any guidelines or were there requirements for this piece? Yes, there were extensive guidelines. (laughs) There were um, guidelines that required the artist to speak about erasure of Black um, women to talk about the history of Native Americans in the in the area of uh, Beacon Hill, to talk about Africans, uh, talk about Black people in general, to talk about heroism and kind of interweave just the history of that space, the history of Atlanta in that in that space, and heroism and how to interweave that legacy with what the community is trying to be right now. And I think in your artist statement, you make the point that heroes are not created magically from some other universe or supernatural powers. I was intrigued with reading about your philosophy. Would you talk about how you see the role of the artist? Sure. The role of an artist is to kind of translate what the human experience is into something. And it could be, if we think about it, like everything that exists outside of like food, water, (laughs) air, the ground, like everything that isn't given to us by the universe, by whatever thing we believe in is made by someone, either for some type of function, like, you know, architecture is a function of like shelter, but it is an art. And I think it's the responsibility of art artists and artisans to kind of translate the human experience into objects, even if it's hard to kind of articulate it and you may not understand it from your first viewing of it or first interaction with it. I think it's still the artist's responsibility to kind of translate the human experience in whatever way that they deem necessary. And you mentioned honoring the many peoples who inhabited what we know now as the Atlanta area. I know that your work is informed by spiritual imagery and what you call the future ancient style. That seems like a contradiction in terms. It does. (laughs) Would you tell us about what future ancient means? Future ancient is a concept of what would it be like for the people who come after us to uncover what we have right now. What would they think of this time? What would they think about 2020, 2021? So that's what I mean by future ancient. Like this is going to be ancient to someone in the future. And I'm kind of 
thinking in that way. Like, what do I want to say about these times with my work? And what are you saying with this Sonia Sanchez piece? What Sonia says, I'm saying that there is a network that exists throughout culture and time between indigenous peoples, between persons who are descendants of chattel slavery and the, the continent of Africa throughout the diaspora and in the community of Beacon Hill, there's a history of, of heroism that exists that has been passed down. And I kind of translate that into an, an analogy with fire, which is why I say with what Sonia said, because what Sonia says in her poem, Catch the Fire, is that ancestors came before us and made a way for us to do what we're doing now. And it's like a passing of a flame to go ahead and stand in that same, that same truth and that same power and do something great for yourself and for the people around you so that the people after you can catch that fire and do something great as well. I think that's a poetic view on your part. <laughs> Thank you. Poetic view of a visual artist. So would you talk a bit about the Art for the People project? What Art for the People is doing is beautiful because public art is for the public. It's, it's for the people. And so having an organization that is, is keen on making sure that the people who are in these surrounding areas are represented in the art that's created and displayed in that area is brilliant. And I'm, I'm really glad to be working with them. Mm -hmm. Beacon Hill has been working for more than three years to remove symbols of white supremacy in Decatur's public square. Last June, one of those monuments, a 30-foot-tall obelisk that had been erected in 1908 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, was taken off its pedestal. What ideas came to mind when thinking of a statue or sculpture that should replace it? I think that any symbol that represents where that community wants to go, because the thing about history is like everybody can can attest that it, it, it happened, <laughs> but it doesn't, if the ideals don't align with where the community wants to go, it no longer serves anyone. So any monument that the community agrees upon that represents what they believe should be the inspiration for whatever the community wants to become should go there. And thinking about the context of Sonia Sanchez and her poetry, is it important for the viewer of your sculpture to know who she was? I, I think so. I think it's important to, to at least know the poem. And to actually, there's videos of her on YouTube performing it. I think it's important to, um, to see her perform it in, in the vigor and the passion that she performs it in. But yeah, she's a, a brilliant poet, activist, and I think it, it, it would be um, enriching for people to, to, to discover who she is. So will there be any context with the sculpture? There is going to be a QR code that's going to be on a display next to the sculpture that visitors are going to be able to, to scan. And there's actually a, a musical score uh, that goes along with the piece that's going to be displayed on a website that's on the Beacon Hills domain that's going to have all this information available um, and links to it. Oh, that's wonderful. Is it original music? or Yes. Whoa. What can you tell us about it? So Down to Mars is a production team based out of New York right now, and they're mostly uh, church musicians. And in church music culture, there's a term, start low, go slow, rise higher, catch fire. Basically what that is, is there's a, a moment in black church services where things kind of just take a turn and the music becomes very rhythmic and inspiring and people move around and they, they shout and things of that nature. So I wanted to kind of align that concept because I am having a, a fire theme with this work to align the music with that same idea, like make it feel like catching fire.
So it's a uh, it's beautiful. There's full band, saxophone, trumpet, guitar, bass, keys, drums, everything. It's beautiful. It's very jazz and um, gospel oriented as well. This has been very interesting, and and I thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Atlanta multidisciplinary artist Alex Swavoni. You can see her new sculpture, What Sonia Said, in downtown Decatur. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Jesse Smith, a.k.a. Gentleman Jesse, has been a fixture on the Atlanta music scene for over 15 years. Now, after taking a long break from the studio, the guitar-pop musician has returned with Lose Everything, a 10-track album laced in the wisdom and heartbreak that a decade of life affords. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with Gentleman Jesse over Zoom, and they began their conversation discussing the irony of his previous record's title, Leaving Atlanta, coinciding with his long break from recording. Yeah, I was just trying to, I guess, make people miss me for a minute. I think it worked. And, you know, I'm just being cheeky about leaving Atlanta because the fact of the matter is you kept yourself really busy over those years and became a restaurant tour in Atlanta, right? Yeah, it was definitely a bluff. I hunkered down pretty hard in the city. And that's kind of why uh, you haven't heard from me in a little while is that my attention kind of was taken away by uh, Kimball House, which is over in Decatur. That's the restaurant we opened uh, eight years ago. Congratulations on that, by the way. It's a great restaurant. And you've since also opened another, right? Yeah, uh, Watchman's over in Krog Market. That's a little over three years old. And as of November, we have oysters in the water at an oyster farm in the Gulf side of Florida. You're an oyster farmer now. And an oyster farmer. That's awesome. You're truly becoming a renaissance man. And, Very cool. Yeah, full plate for sure. Well, let's talk about your new release. It's called Lose Everything. And I'm not going to lie, it's a little darker than some other stuff. It's got a little hint of sadness, Do you want to talk some theory behind naming the album that? And some of the topic subjects are pretty heavy. Yeah, I don't know. You know, my previous work definitely had a lot of lightheartedness to it. But there was always some kind of somber undertones there. And I guess my taste in music started to gravitate towards things that were a little more dark. And so that Mm -hmm. probably influenced it. And then... Ultimately, the title of the album came from a a house on the street that I live in over in the Edgewood neighborhood, burned down, just completely to the ground. And so this idea of like complete loss of everything that you've built for a lifetime, just being taken away in one day kind of like stuck to me. And so I decided to center the record around the idea of loss and its different forms. Some of the lyrics on this album are 
are pretty hard hitters to the gut. One of them in Lose Everything, all of your heroes are dying or dead. Can you recall what they said to you? Tell me about that. You know, it just seemed like a lot of musical icons were starting to die off. It just seemed like one after the other. And it, I think as a, you know, a, a collective group of music fans, it just seemed like that it was just like, one, oh, who's next, you know? Lemmy from Motorhead, Lou Reed, you know, just like it just like kept happening. And I think that people yeah. sort of expect it. And I think that there's so much inspiration that comes from lyrics to people. And we have the luxury of adding a musical tone to it. So sometimes those words can carry more weight than the written word just because we can put a, a sound to it and it creates more of an emotive response. So I think that the idea of recalling what's important about what those people were saying not necessarily Lemmy or anything. I love him to death, but... <laughs> when you started talking about it, originally my first thought went to the year that Bowie passed in the same time that Prince passed or slightly before. And it it did feel like we were losing a lot really quickly. Yeah, it, it, it really did. So, I mean, that kind of inspired that line. But there is a little bit of hopefulness in that sentiment that the idea that you could possibly carry that torch is kind of what's implied there. Another song that I'd like to talk about for a minute is called Hunger. Yeah. Tell me about the line, some say I might have lost my way because the hunger doesn't drive me anymore. So I, I should have been more prepared for this because I can't remember the author's name, but that song in particular is centered around uh, a novel that I read that is called Hunger. And it's about sort of how easily things can kind of snowball in life. And before you know it, you're just kind of like buried in I don't know, like debt and just like eventually this person in this novel couldn't afford to eat anymore. And it was so bad that he didn't want to eat or when he did, he would get sick. It's a really heavy book. Mm. I wish I could remember the author's name. And I thought that, you know, probably the most, for lack of a better word, happy sounding song on the record. And so I wanted to sort of like have a, a darkness to, uh, I guess, compliment that in a weird way. It does, though. It really does. lot of the songs they seem like anthems you have such good pop hooks and you can hear people clapping and stomping to your music so easily it's really only when you start to focus on the lyrics that a little bit of that sadness and maturity start coming back uh yeah i mean i guess i don't know where that comes from exactly being a <laughs> sort of a pessimist maybe <laughs> do you consider yourself a pessimist from time to time i don't know it's I, I switch it's like one of those things where i feel like i look at the cup half empty but it doesn't stop me from trying to move forward what do you, oh, what do you like call it. that That's scrappy <laughs> yeah if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitzes. We've been listening to City Lights senior producer Kim Drobe speaking with musician Gentleman Jesse. He's talking about his new album, Lose Everything. So before we get into more songs, because I did kind of dive right in there. I'd like to talk a little bit about how this record came to be. And in the past, for the unfamiliar, it's been Gentleman Jesse and his men. But your men are not here. Did you play every instrument on this album? I did. I did. Well, well first. Wow. Yeah, I've been trying to drop the and his men for a really long time. It, it, I think I like hinted towards it somewhere on the text of the last album, but I haven't been playing shows as and his men for a while it's just too wordy but this record is just me I, you know and that's a byproduct of the pandemic ah. not necessarily the way i wanted to 
do it, but I found myself uh, writing songs was coming more easily than it had been in years prior. And I mm. didn't want to lose momentum in the writing. So I just decided to get together with my friend, Ryan Bell, who I played music with off and on. He's kind of a fixture in the Atlanta scene. And he's been recording a lot of bands lately. He plays in Gigi King and he records all those records and many others. And so it was like the easiest way to do it was to just get in there and have him record it and me play it just because teaching a bunch of people songs and not knowing if we were going to be sick was not exactly a good idea. So yeah, no doubt. Well, that's still it's incredibly impressive. Was there a particular instrument that was harder for you to pick up? I've always dabbled. Um, the first musical instrument to come into the home when I lived with my parents as a young person <laughs> was the drum set. My dad was a drummer and one of my older brother's friends was selling a drum set. My dad was like, oh, we're, we're getting that. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was always around, but I never focused on it. Like I would always fool around. And so I could play enough to like keep a beat. I'm not like an exceptional drummer by any stretch, but I have been playing since I was about 13. So I would have loved to have another drummer <laughs> available at that time. I feel like that's maybe what's most compromised about the record. But, you know, we got through it. I'll tell you what, playing drums for, we had to get it done in one day. So I had to play drums for 13 hours straight. What? Yeah, it was intense. Why did you have to get it done in a day? Um, because we were borrowing pieces of equipment and we recorded it at a practice space. And another band was practicing the following night and I and so it was just like, it's now or never. So. Oh my gosh. Did you get blisters? Uh, not too bad, actually. You know, I tried to like when I knew that I was going to be playing for that long. So I tried to remember <laughs> finesse, at least in the way that I was mm. hitting the drums and holding the sticks and things like that. So not, not too bad. It was more, uh, you know what? The worst was my hip. <laughs> From the kick or the something? The kick drum. Oh my God. Yeah. That is an incredibly long time to sit behind a drum yeah, kit. Yeah, I definitely felt for all the drummers that I've known in the in the past and been like, oh, maybe this is why you guys get the reputation for being a little off. <laughs> I mean, plus load in and load out. It's never fun for a Oh, and no one helps them. <laughs> you mentioned your father having been a drummer. What does he think about your musical career? Uh, he likes it, but it's also one of those things, whichever band has the best drummer are the ones that he likes the best. <laughs> He's like, yeah, your guitar playing's <laughs> fine, but who's, who you got on drums? <laughs> Can we talk about one of the more serious songs on the record, Dead May Rest? Yeah. I never could solve this mystery of what was missing between you and me. How we slide so comfortably into predetermined identity. one's a little tricky it's a there, there's a lot that I'm trying to get together in a short amount of time there and it sort of has the idea is the trappings of American life mm. and the negative aspects of capitalism but I also wanted to try to tie that into like personal relationships as well and how all these things sort of interplay and how you spend so much of your life working towards something and how it feels like you can't get there. Kind of like, I don't know, ingrained into the, the fabric of this country. It seems like that you're supposed to work really hard and always strive for more, but it's like, it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. Yeah. In Dead May Rest, you have a line that says the dead may rest, but their lessons may return. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's something that we've been dealing with a lot in the, the past few years is the idea of trying to not let history repeat itself. And to sort of be a counterpoint to that, it just feels like it keeps going and going and, and we just keep doing the same things over and over again. I hear you. Another line in there is you can't wash the blood off history, which feels so right for this time. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to talk about the cover art on the album. Who did that beautiful haunting photo? A photographer by the name of Riley McBride. They 
actually were an employee of mine is how I met them. And they told me that they were having a photography exhibit at the Mint Gallery over on the West End. So I went to go check it out and I was really taken by their photographs. I purchased one at that show and then I was like, I really want them to shoot my album cover if they're interested. And I talked to them and they were. So that's awesome. There's a back cover that was really good. It's a picture that they found when they were looking around the city for things to shoot. And it was a bird's head that was on the concrete. Oh, Um, wow. And so that's the back cover of it. And it was like, I almost use it as a front cover. Just, you know, obviously that ties into the record as well. (laughs) But I thought that that may be a little heavy handed, but too good not to use. So it is the back cover. Back cover it is. That makes sense. You obviously have a great appreciation for art. And is it accurate to say that you also dabble yourself? Yeah. So the insert of the record comes with a booklet. Each page has the lyrics to the song. And then there is a lino cut print that I did to accompany the song. So each song has something illustrated to go with it. And so, yeah, I dabble a little bit. I'm not good. I just, I like to do it. And doing prints like that is A, like the kind of music that I make. It's pretty quick and sort of gratifying and the DIY aspect of it. And it looks good, even if you're not really that talented, which is what I feel about (laughs) the music that I make. It sounds pretty good for not being that good. (laughs) Oh my God, you're ridiculous. For the unfamiliar, can you explain what a lino cut print is? Yeah, you get some sort of block and you kind of like carve it out, cover it with ink and then press paper on it. So you can be really not a great illustrator and sketch out a rough idea. And then you, when you carve it out just by the process, it looks pretty cool. Last year after John Lewis passed away, You made some prints in his honor, right? Yeah, I did. You know, I wanted to be able to do something to contribute to some sort of push somewhere. And so after he passed, I was like, I'm going to make a print. I just sold them for $30 a piece. And I was able to raise $1,300 for Fair Fight Action because the election was coming up. And I really wanted people to be able to get their voice heard. I was floored by the response and I was definitely flattered that people were interested. That's fantastic. So you mentioned that been trying to get away from the mouthful of end his men for a while, but was the idea of being solo on stage something that was ever appealing to you? You know, I do it from time to time. A lot of my songs do best when there's backup vocals or there's some sort of bell and whistle. With this material, just the way it worked out is a little bit more self-sufficient. So I'd probably be more interested in doing it now that the material lends itself a little better to it. But I, you know, I've had people who are like, you should play a solo set. You can do that song, All I Need Tonight. I'm like, the whole song is backup vocals. So not very good with that without the rest of the gang so i do remember a show gosh this is i don't know maybe 10 years ago or so where greg cartwright from the raining sound and previously the oblivions had asked you to do a solo set and i just remember chatting with you before the show and you just did not seem like you were on board with playing solo and you did a great job but it it, felt as though possibly someone had talked you into it. Uh, that's usually how it goes with that kind of stuff. And and, I, <laughs> and I'm easily coerced. It's one of those things, you know, I've been playing music live for longer than I haven't been. Oh, that's a weird sentence, isn't it? Yes. But I still get nervous and I still just get like the anxiety of I just want to get this done kind of thing. So <laughs> and when you have some other people up there to share the brunt of the attention um it's a little easier but when you're just by yourself and maybe your flubs just they get noticed a lot more easily in that (laughs) circumstance so not what i set out to do (laughs) but but i'll do it especially when someone that you admire as much as greg cartwright asks oh for sure so you have a show tomorrow night at the Earl with the aforementioned Greg Cartwright. Who else is on that bill? Uh, Mother's Milk, which is a band formerly known as Uniform, who also was recording an album at the same time as me. And so that record, you know, I hope comes out soonish. I think it's coming out in 
2022 at some point, maybe spring. But I put in the liner notes um, that the Mother's Milk record is an accidental companion piece to lose everything. Very cool. Excited to have them. And of course, to have Greg. I'm very fortunate that Greg is the kind of guy that I can text. Like, hey, we do the exact same thing that he did to me. Hey, will you come play a solo show? (laughs) I think he's a little more at ease with it because he does it more than I do. (laughs) But yeah, better sport than I am. (laughs) Gentleman Jesse, a.k.a. Jesse Smith, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Gentleman Jesse's new album is Lose Everything, and he'll be playing the Earl tomorrow, Friday, December 17th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from Melissa Rossi, Artistic Director of the Atlanta Women's Chorus. Their upcoming holiday concert, Remembrance and Joy, is this weekend. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Special thanks to all of you who contributed to W-A-B-E during our fundraiser. Wishing you all the best for a safe and good weekend. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.